This episode is brought to you by Friends of Firefighters, serving the FDNY community since 2001. Learn more at friendsoffirefighters.com. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate good news in the food world, from record-setting butter sculptures to the latest discoveries in crop cultivation. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds, and it was a Paris landscape. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture. We don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown, maybe discovered along the way. And we hear from the beloved chef and disaster relief organizer, Jose Andres. Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground. And more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. Tune in to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, it's Tuesday, October 15th, 2019, and I'm Jimmy Carboni. And once again, for the third week in a row, we've got leftovers from the Shelton Brothers Festival in Buffalo. Um, Joel, you, you keep bringing them in, and we appreciate it, because the, I think that some of the more interesting brewers uh, that we know uh, were at your festival this year. How you doing, Joel? I'm all right. I'm, uh, I'm waiting for the check from the first two shows. To, <laughs> <laughs> well, we had some great guests on Brasserie de la Seine, the new Garden Path ferments in uh, Washington State. Um, Duranke and some other guys. Um, but good buddies here. Uh, I was waiting for, I think we booked the show like four months ago, Sebastian. Introduce yourself. Welcome back. Hey, Jimmy. Uh, my name is Sebastian Sauer from Freigeist Beer Kultur in Germany. And uh, yeah, I was uh, happy and lucky enough to be a few times on the show. No, and I appreciate last, that when yes. you mentioned coming to New York in the, in the spring, we, we were one of the first things that you booked. So I've been looking forward to it. October 15th. Sebastian Sauer. All right. And uh, you're here doing a collaboration with one of our other buddies. Joe, how are you? Doing great. So, Joe Grimm, Grimm Ales. So, yes. t- so tell us how you guys met, because the whole thing about collaborations and, and the Shelton Brothers Festival seems to be a, a magic for the brewers. Yeah, I think it's true. The Shelton Brothers Festival is really the best festival that there is. Great. And at the <laughs> festival... But it's not because of last year. (laughs) Uh, Sebastian and I ended up hanging out a little bit and talking about music and just drinking beer and having some fun. So uh, it was really nice to get an email from him and uh, when he wanted to let us know he was coming. It's great. So we're going to talk a little bit about what you guys have been doing. But first, uh, there's a list that Sebastian has. Number one is Cool Ship. Yes. Number two is (laughs) Champagne Method, and number three is Icebox. So. Let's start with Cool Ship. Tell us about your Cool You're working with this amazing Cool Ship. You're interested in traditions. Remember we talked about the, when the Reinheitsgebot, the German purity laws had the 500th anniversary, you led a protest. Um, let's bring our, our listeners up to date with what, what your view of German beer is and the role you see yourself doing. Um, I mean, we started 10 years ago starting uh, making different type of beers. And that was like uh, more on the semi-professional way, just like trying to make some beers, just as, like trying different recipes and just uh, trying to get different um, flavors and different histories back in Germany. 
but um, yeah, the beginning at at the beginning it was not the idea to actually um, make this on a big scale or whatever. You know, it was just like more like uh, something interesting for us to try and um, everything which became afterwards was just like okay cool we're actually working on a professional scale on that um with the cool ship this was like on the 500th anniversary of the purity law um we brewed a beer with our friend tilo from ritter Gutzgose, and um, that was a beer based on the recipe of a from 19th century from the city of goslar uh, which is the original Gose um, city so the small creek uh, running close by to the city would be called goes and that is uh, what named the beer style and um, so we would make that recipe um, and would pretty much uh, introduce the cool ship uh, or would make the first commercial beer on that cool ship again in former times it was used uh, in the brewery i work at uh, forman brewery close to dortmund and um, that was like used for the original purpose of a cool ship just cooling down word and about 10 years ago they had a, a complete renovation of the brewery and build a new brew house so they pretty much um, retired the uh, old brew house they have from 1938 and uh, the cool ship which is from 1933 and so they got all that out and pretty much built a new uh, system in and um, since then the cool ship was laying around and we uh, pretty much installed that up until 2016 so we were able to use it for the first time and then uh, had a main fermentation on the cool ship use some old original uh, yeast from old Goza bottles from the last original Goza brewery from the 1940s, uh, pitched that into the cool ship, uh, did a main fermentation there and aged the beer for three years and just released that and served that at the Shirt Mothers Festival. Wow, that's great. And I remember tr- having some of your beers like Abraxas, smoked wheat beer. I mean, you've really looked, to me, you're, you're interested in traditional German styles and um Tell us a few of the beers that have been highlights for you and that, that have been exported to the States. Yeah, I think the Abraxas is uh, one of the main first ones, which was like really uh, changed the view of a lot of uh, people in the U.S. about German craft beer. Because until then, people always uh, just thought of German beer as like this macro lager beer, very cheap, very good quality, but still like always the same taste. And um, when we were able to send beers for Shelton Brothers to the U.S. in 2012 for the first time, I think Abraxas was one of the ones which was like standing out uh, the most because it's uh, based on a historical beer style called Lichtenheiner, which is a sour smoked wheat beer. And um, until this point, I think the U.S. craft scene didn't see any of that kind of style at all, which was like combining both acidity, like sourness and um, smokiness. And um, so still nowadays, a lot of people would talk to me about like how much uh, this beer turned them on. And so now we produce this beer um, directly fresh in Indiana at Upland Brewery to have it uh, available in U.S. kegs and uh, cans to actually uh, make it available and in a way fresher and better priced uh, situation than shipping it all over uh, the Atlantic. Now you, you've also been very innovative. I mean, I know that... So you're, tell us the other places that you're making beer. I mean, you've, you've been traveling a lot. I'd like to know about some of your brewing partners, brewing locations that you work with. Um, there's like, at, in Germany, I'm working at three breweries right now. In the U.S., at two different breweries. And um, just like always looking for different options, whatever um, things make sense and whatever's possible to do. It's always very nice to uh, recreate a lot of historical beers because there's like, 
it's kind of a little bit the heart and the beginning and the roots of Fry Guys um, to kind of work on that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, um, the interest is not always the biggest for these kind of styles. That's just like right now we're in this movement. There's like people mostly want to have hazy IPAs and cattle sour beers and stuff like that. And um, so it's just that we always kind of like need to still push the boundaries and kind of shaking up people to actually be interested in other stuff because a few years ago we were like trying to like uh, um, make people taste different beers than just the big beer, the big lagers and stuff like that and just like trying to turn them into like other flavors and now it's just like it's a lot of microbreweries producing uh, these beers but it's like a lot of the same and it's just pretty much cool to just like make people taste still other stuff in within the craft beer range, you know. So it's, no, it's a lot of the, the favorite people. It's great, great to have you back, and we're going to be talking for a long cool. time tonight. So, Joe, uh, last time we had you on, since then you've opened your, your brewery tasting room here in Bushwick. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and what, what that experience has been like. Yeah, so up until about a year and a half ago, I was doing the same thing that Sebastian is, you know, is currently doing and just um, producing beer along with my wife, um, in any brewery that we could like establish the right kind of relationship with wherever they were. So, uh, you know, we were making beer in, uh, Staten Island. We were making beer in Massachusetts and making beer down in Virginia. And, uh, it was working out great, but we had things that we wanted to be able to do projects that we wanted to get to that we couldn't have done without having our own space. So that's really been our focus trying to, uh, get into the styles of beer that are impossible to produce uh, on a sort of a gypsy basis. What are you pouring, Joel? I don't know. I don't have my glasses. <laughs> so we, tell us. Oh, tell okay, us. Okay, yeah, this yeah. is one of yours. You tell us. Yeah. Um, looks like we're having tracery. It's a... Um, this is a Saison de Coupage. Um, it's sort of a... Um, one of the... It's an example of one of those things that I was just talking about, like a beer that we wanted to make but that was hard to do um when we were doing contracting so this one is a it's a beer that's made out of 70 percent fresh saison sort of a classic belgian expression with a step mash and 100 percent pilsner malt and just noble hops but then 30 percent of it is aged uh sour beer from our oak library so uh it sort of brings a bit of that funk and complexity and acidity, um, but not overwhelmingly sour. Tell, it tells more. I was looking on your Instagram, and um, you, you had Jester King there recently looking at your, your barrel library. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about... sounds like that's a big part of what you're doing. You have things in barrels. You're able to blend. Yeah. Well, we're really a fermentation-focused brewery. That's the thing that we get excited about the most. Um, different kinds of fermentation and uh, different levels of complexity from from what we can get yeast and bacteria to do. Uh, so what we've been developing over the past year is, uh, is a really large collection of oak barrels from different ages and with slight variations. And we love making these beers where we're just tasting through the, the stock and putting together blends. And then, you know, we'll sometimes add uh, secondary ingredients to add even more uh, interest. That's great. So, um, Sebastian, uh, number two, you mentioned Cool Ship. And actually, Joe, you, you were curious about his Cool Ship, too. So just describe to us that 
I mean, to me, cool ship seeing guys like OEC in Connecticut who've who've used it. It seems like the the natural way to cool beer is a cool ship. Um, let's talk more about cool ships. And Joe, you you're interested in them too. Um, the- yeah, sure. Well, I mean, cool ships sort of have a, a double meaning, right? When one like the the first thing I think about usually when I think about a cool ship is is it a, it's a place to to have like a spontaneous inoculation happen. Um, but that's not the original intent of a cool ship. They weren't created in order to inoculate the beer with microbes. They were created in order to cool the wort down. So uh, uh, it's interesting figuring out the different ways that a cool ship can be put to use. But it's kind of a throwback to the days when there would have been more wild yeast going into beer in general in the old breweries, right? Yeah, mean, before people right. thought beer shouldn't be funky at all, before it got all cleaned up, right? I think that's more or less true because there aren't that many cool ships that still sit in Germany that have been there all along, right? I mean, there's still quite a few around, um, speci- specifically in rural areas. Yeah, in rural. I mean, it's just yeah. like it's just like having uh, um, a normal like a glycol cooler and stuff like that for cooling down the word. So it's like so much more expensive if you have something already which you know how to operate. And so a lot of the stuff nowadays where we, uh, people and brewers and stuff get excited about, like, oh, my God, they have, like, this old system and stuff is mostly because people were not really able to afford new systems. So they would continue using that old stuff, and uh, otherwise they would have pretty much updated their uh, systems and their um, processes in the meantime because uh, a lot of it is, like, uh, way more efficient, way more clean, and uh, yeah, it's just like works way better. It's just like spending, uh, spends a lot of uh, time just like cleaning a cool ship and just like cleaning it before, cleaning it afterwards. You know, there's like always the risk something falls inside in the theoretical case, you know. So it's just like not something uh, which most breweries, especially on a um, like very commercial scale, would want to do. There's still some examples around, but nowadays it's like most of them are like actually small. Uh, countryside breweries like in, around Franconia, Uriga and Düsseldorf would be one of the ones. Genstaller has has cool shit. Yes, but Uriga and Düsseldorf, which would uh, make like actually pretty big size uh, production, still. I mean, it's still small. Uriga beers are not. There's nothing like a lambic. It's like this beautiful, clean, yeah, multi alt. Exactly. You know, but it's just like also they have a very very limited shelf life. You know, so they would just like like drink it in, until uh, the end of the month pretty much you know so it's like very very for quick uh, consumption and there's so, like always a risk that something is going on with it you know so what benefit does a cool ship offer if you're not looking for anything wild to get into the beer i mean you need to picture the the time when it was invented it was just like when you like have a way big, bigger filling um it's just like it takes way more time um, until the word would actually cool down in a proper way, and all of that time which it takes would just like uh, have way more um, time for like uh, bacteria, wild wild yeast and stuff coming inside, and so the risk of having some infection going on is like way bigger. So you just pretty much spread the uh, on a cool ship and just like have a very uh, shallow word on it. So um, that you have a proper, yeah, very a quick picture you down. showed us. It's a, a room you're working in. It's a, it's almost the entire size of a room. It's like a swimming pool, very shallow swimming. Pool. Yeah, exactly. It's very shallow, so it cools down very uh, smoothly, very quickly, and uh, then you would just like transfer it right away um, to like uh, the open fermenters or 
close five meters, whatever your equipment is. But uh, that would be the way to do it because there were no other uh, um, kind, no other equipment around before the uh, artificial cooling was invented in the 1870s. Joe, yeah, um, when uh, when Lauren and I figured out that the purpose of a cool ship was not to inoculate the beer, that was a bit of a, a eureka moment for us because the. <laughs> The way that American brewers tend to think about a cool ship is exclusively in the, the realm of Lambic. Um, and I think it's just a part of that sort of Lambic process. We, we got into the possibility of making our own spontaneous fermentation beers here in Brooklyn. Um, and we have already started that project. They're sitting in Oak now. Um, but we don't have, you know, in our space that many square feet uh, to burn on a cool ship. We wanted to make something that was inspired by Lambic. Uh, what we realized was we could uh, make an amazing spontaneous beer using our uh, heat exchanger and cooling the beer down and then uh, exposing that cooled beer uh, to the, the, I guess, the ambient microbes and letting that be the sole source of... Uh, of fermentation and that experiment has been growing great those barrels are tasting really really nice even though at this point they're only about six months old and how, how are you leaving them open are you are the, literally the tops are open or just it's open to air um our process was to uh, do the entire uh, lambic mash with like a turbid mash and a really long boil with aged hops and we uh then cooled the beer down into the 60-degree range and spread it out across all the different vessels of our brew house. So I, th I think part of the, the sort of formula for getting a good spontaneous inoculation is you want a lot of surface area of the beer. So what we were able to do, even though we have a 30-barrel brew house, we have three vessels, so we could split that so that it was only 10 barrels in each vessel, which gave it a lot of surface area. And... Uh, we just set up some box fans, pointed them down towards the wort, and let let them run overnight. Um, we took a, a look uh, the next day, and there was all kinds of stuff uh, getting started in that wort. So then we sort of put it all back together, homogenized it, and just racked it into barrels and let the fermentation happen in the barrels. So now you have, jumping, you have the barrel library that, like I said, Jester King was tasting samples and the tracery has some of that in there tell us how that evolved and and how important that is to the beers you're making it's really sort of our dream project to be a, a world-class sour beer producer and so we we wanted to have a space where we could have a big selection of of oak to blend from uh, we always had trouble when we were making these styles um as a gypsy brewing company because we weren't managing the barrels. Uh, keeping track of exactly what you have is difficult and getting them down, tasting, you know, tasting through all these individual things and doing the blending is uh, sort of a highly idiosyncratic kind of a process. And it's not so easy to just sort of break it down into a simple recipe. Uh, so it's something that we really needed to have our own space to do. Um, a lot of our our uh, sour beers now are made with um, 
just a very simple pilsner and wheat base and fermented with a mix of Brettanomyces, Lactobacillus, and Saison uh, yeast. And we blend different vintages together and uh, we'd like to dose in very controlled amounts of our special aged hop base. Um, yeah, and that's sort of how we do it. And what, what's this next beer? These are, I'm, I'll point out that these beers are in bottles. What are these, 500 milliliter bottles? Mm-hmm. So we've been getting so much beer in cans in the last couple of weeks we've had. Enough with the cans. Enough with the cans. We've had some great bottled beers, Garden Path uh, Fermentary. And what, what's the second beer, Joe? Uh, this is Gathering. So um, it's a new series that we're really excited about. And this, there's, a, there's a couple of things going on in Gathering. The first thing is that this series only uses fresh, local, whole fruit that are re-fermented on our, our barrel-aged beer. Um, so it, we are working with uh, Grow NYC as well as Farms to Tables, and we are getting fruit from Hudson Valley, uh, from New Jersey, and so we'll use whatever, like each, each edition of Gathering basically has the fruit that is available on the week when we start the process of of making it, and that's uh, fresh that day. So what we have here that we're tasting now is gathering catch plums, and then I also brought... Spell uh, the Q, right? Q-U-E. Right. It's like an Italian plum. Hmm. And I also have And we know fans uh, of Lambic that Tilkin makes a quetch plum. Yeah, same same one. But these these are the New York plums. And then we also have one with red currants and peaches. And so those... The red currants and peaches just happen to be ripe at the same time this year. Um, that's amazing. So that's you could save, keep keep track of these for the next couple of years, and you could f- follow the whole kind of New York Northeastern harvest. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind it's, of amazing. It's it's an exciting thing for us. But one of the challenges that we had was that these fruit basically come whole; they're not processed in any way. And so we had to figure out how are we going to deal with them since they're not a puree or, you know, an extract or, you know, there's a lot of fruit character in these fruits that are not that easy to get to. So um, our answer to that question was uh, to implement this winemaking technique called carbonic maceration, which uh, actually the guys at Jester King, uh, as far as I know, were the first people to apply this to beer. What you do is you take all the fruit and you put it in a tank and purge that tank out with CO2 so that there's no oxygen in the tank. And in the absence of oxygen, a couple of things that are really interesting happen. The first thing is that molds and unpleasant, spontaneous things can't actually grow while the nice bugs that you want can still live. So it, it, it's uh, the helpful bacteria and yeast tend to be anaerobic and the flavor spoilers tend to be aerobic. So by purging out all the air, you're sort of like eliminating those class of unclean, spontaneous microbes. But the other thing is that in that oxygen purged environment, um, the, the fruit itself actually starts to undergo a, a chemical process and it will do a fermentation inside of its skin that's not a yeast or a bacterial fermentation. That's really crazy. The 
the fruit will just gradually begin to swell and then it will burst from the gas building up inside the fruit and the colors will change. Now, the first, times, first time we did this, we were using tart cherries, which went in like a deep red. And then after a little bit of carbonic uh, fermentation, we looked at them again, they were white because mm. all of the pigment had moved around and they had burst open and leaked their juice out. So it was really a way for us to so, and wine get is a, these It's these a technique with wine grapes to really bring out more flavor. That's well, part it's, of it. It's um, in a way, it's, it's like a low tech way to do it that doesn't involve uh, like processing the grapes, smashing them or blending them, right? It's it's encouraging the grapes to burst on their own and release their juice. Um, so we figured that this would be a great way for us to use these whole fruit. Um, so that's what we're tasting now. It's uh, it's plums. They've undergone carbonic, and they begin to sort of like leak their juice out, and then they auto ferment, uh, like they do the, like a spontaneous fermentation on their own, almost like a plum wine. Then we were adding the beer onto that and finishing the fermentation uh, with uh, the sour beer that's been aging in the cellar. So yeah, it's a it's a bit of a different kind of fruit character. In the wine world, the people that are into carbonic maceration tend to describe it as crispy. It's like a almost like a Rice Krispies treat quality to the way that the uh, the texture of a uh, carbonic maceration wine comes out, and I think it sort of comes across in the beer too. Oh, it does. Um, anyone want to follow up with that before I go to the next subject? That's pretty, Joe. That's pretty good. Um, we're going to keep talking. But, it's a very tasty beer. Yes. It's very clean. Right? The, the, the effect is very clean. I don't know if it's based yeah. on what, what you were just talking about. It's not getting all wild stuff going in there. And the effect, it's, it's not it even, is. you don't even think of funky or sour much at all. It's just like this beautiful fruit taste. Yeah, it, it is spontaneously fermented, but by depriving it of air, it's only the clean tasting microbes that can get going. It's great nose and uh, very nice fruity character in the taste as well. It's definitely something that it's almost like you need to taste it. And I'm also, I love to taste this. How, long, how, how many years do you think this has in it? You think we could lay this down for two years and it, I'm it would be pretty I'm excited to find great. out. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's start keeping track. I want to keep track of all your harvests and uh, you know, lay some stuff down for a couple of years. Yeah. We could, book, fun. we could book the show for October 2000. What year is this? 2021. Why not? You yeah. know, Joel. Um, it's in the book. But let's go now. So now, Sebastian's other subject. So champagne method, I, I saw on Instagram. So I'm looking at Instagram for these guys because it's the only thing that's up to date uh, with what they're doing. Um, you've been working with the champagne method with, with large format bottles. Um, tell us how, what you're doing and what, you know, what base beer you're working with and, and why. Mm, it looks yeah. great. You know, you've got racking champagne bottles on these wooden racks. I mean, the process is uh, pretty much well known. It's the same one you would do with wine to make champagne out of it. And so that's pretty much what we do. But we just use uh, base beer um, to start with, you know. So, um, but t- tell us, t- still tell us the process because not everybody knows. Okay, so we use champagne. whatever beer we decide to work with and um, would add champagne yeast. Um, would fill it in uh, yeah, big bottles and uh, would uh, fill them, uh, would close them with a crown cap 
uh, would put them into wooden shelves and then just like uh, have a hand rattling process you know so the yeast is uh, slowly settling down on the bottle and then you pretty much want to get it all together at one spot and then you just like from slowly moving it at the beginning you just like pushing it harder and harder and just like pretty much to get the yeast at the final stage um, just on the crown cap and uh, when you add this process you're pretty much freezing the bottle um, upside down you know like the bottleneck and the uh, the bottleneck you would freeze and um, then you just open it really quickly to which is called the gorging process and um, so you're just like kicking out the yeast and then you're filling it uh, the bottle closing it again with a cork are you doing it one one bottle at a time yeah you have to do that it's a manual uh, process also the hand rattling is pretty much like all manual so you just like need to touch each so and every bottle each a lot bottle of times. you turn yeah how often do you turn it um it's uh, a lot of times it's just like about 40 times or something and what does the freezing do the freezing is like, is like for there for get it from you would pretty much chill down the beer. So in former times, uh, the process was like warm degorging before people would actually be able to freeze it down. And so you would just like open the bottle spontaneous to pretty much shoot out the, like get rid of right. the um, bottle cap where the yeast is uh, settled down. And you would just like get this off. And with the warm degorging, you have a huge mess because, you know, like you do it very spontaneous. And then it's just like the, uh, yeah. the all the wine, or in this case, the beer would just like, uh, sh um, yeah, Pops like, it out. Yeah. yeah, like completely, like gets out, just, and you, you would need to refill down. it again. So you would need to refill them again uh, to just fill them up and uh, be able to close them again. And with the um, degorging process, with cooling it down and stuff like that, cool degorging, you pretty much have but way less uh, losses. When you're doing this, the, the the bottles are upside down, right? Yeah, so the, exactly. The yeast settles near the cap. Yeah, just on the cap. You want it completely to be on the cap. And then, as I said, you're just like pretty much turning it over and just like opening it. And it's just like, uh, yeah, way less of a mess if you do cold degorging than warm degorging. And, and then, the so what, what base beer are you doing with that? What, what kind of beer lends itself to that? Um, we did different beers uh, at the beginning. Um, we had um, like some goza with fruits, for example. Um, we have a Berliner Weiss with Brettanomyces, which we uh, also aged in, in wood. Uh, we had a strong air with different citrus fruits. And now the ones we uh, have right now is actually uh, one would be based on a culture beer we made. Um, so that is a beer made at, in spring 2017. And um, it's yeah a little bit of a darkish top fermenting ale. It would be like we had one clean version and one culture version to just compare those two to each other. and the. A clean version was a top fermenting beer and the other one was just like spontaneous fermented and so we added um for juice which is like the juice of unripe grapes which was in former times used for seasoning um before lemons were uh, popular in northern europe and so this was like used for a lot of dishes and we used this for juice um rosemary ginger pomegranate and some butter orange peel and added all of those ingredients in the cool chip the beer would age um, more than two years in wooden barrels and then we would pretty much do the whole champagne method with it and I um, guess like just like really lot, a lot of great character out of it you know so just like a lot of different type of beers which pretty much I think no, nearly nobody is doing you know so just giving variation to a procedure and to a method to make a very unique kind of products guys hold on a second we're going to take a short break we'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio alright <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by Friends of Firefighters, serving the FDNY community since 2001. Friends of Firefighters is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to providing free, independent, and confidential mental health counseling and wellness services to active and retired FDNY firefighters and their family members. Friends of Firefighters was born within days of September 11, 2001, through the performance of several unobtrusive acts of kindness offered by the local community. Over the past 18 years, Friends of Firefighters has expanded to meet the growing needs of the FDNY community. Today, the organization provides a safe haven in an old restored firehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where New York City firefighters, active and retired, can relax, meet with their peers, receive counseling with no stigma attached, exchange information, and access an array of services specific to their needs. To learn more and find out how you can get involved, go to friendsoffirefighters.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We got Fry Guy, Sebastian Sauer, and Grim Ales, Joe Grimm here. Um, our engineer, Matt Patterson, has a quick question. Uh, Joe was talking about carbonic maceration of fruit. Uh, Matt, what was your question? Yeah, I was just a little unclear on the process. I wanted to know if he was fermenting, allowing that auto-fermentation of the fruit to happen on its own and then adding the beer, or whether it happened in a mixed way. Yeah, so th- that's basically, is, uh, for us, that's the difference between what this is and what our normal fruit process would be. Ordinarily, what we would do is we would put the fruit in uh, to the beer, right away and let the beer ferment the fruit. But so what we're doing uh, with the gathering series is we're putting the fruit in whole um, or in in the case of like a larger fruit, like a peach, we'll slice it a couple of times. Um, We're putting it into the tank dry and just purging the tank. And then we're letting it uh, go for about two weeks um, without any beer involved. And uh, what we see is a lot of, like, amazing fruit juice that we can uh, start to sample and taste. Um, For this uh, third beer that I brought, uh, the Red Currants and Peaches one, we had this amazing tasting uh, peach uh, goo (laughs) that came out. It it started to make, like, it was the first time we had a beer go ropey, but it was actually before any beer was was added. Um, It's a... Something that tends to happen in uh, certain uh, wild fermentations where uh, Pediococcus will get going and it creates like a, um, a texture, almost like shampoo. Um, so we never had that in any of our beers before, but this one got a little bit of that, uh, that uh, character. So, um, so we had this sort of like ropey peach juice. I'll take some ropey beer. Come on. This that was uh, first 
carbonically treated and then allowed to auto ferment on you know, without any beer. And then we uh, create a blend. We add the beer to that. So uh, it really has more in common with something like a, a fruit pickle. If you've ever made pickled fruit where you let the microbes on the surface of the fruit um, do the work. Uh, really all it takes is getting the air out of the situation and you can let the rest of the, the process happen spontaneously. So I think one thing that's different about Grim Ales for, compared to many other New York City breweries, you guys really care about the fermentation process. You're, you're doing mixed ferments. Tell us more about that. I know you did a panel last year at Beer Week about mixed ferments. Oh, sure. Yeah, that was a really fun panel. Um, at that panel we had um john from black duck which is a great cidery um and he really is a guy who lives by his code of just sort of like i grew it i fermented it and it's extremely simple but look what it did um uh another person who was on the panel was uh, rafael from enlightenment wines who makes amazing uh, and complex meads and then we also had Jason down from Hudson Valley Brewery, who has more of sort of a postmodern approach. Um, and uh, it was a great conversation. We ended up having some interesting debates break out um, between the more traditionalists, like John, who were about sort of the impact of time and different microbes to create flavor. And, um, this, you know, on the other hand, the sort of Hudson Valley approach of like, doing it in an additive way where you're, you know, coming up with uh, a recipe that builds complexity by layering different flavors. Uh, so it, I thought it was a lot of fun. And we talked about the different uh, commonalities between making cider, mead, and beer. And uh, I think we realized that we were all sort of doing the same thing, uh, just using different mediums. That's pretty cool. And last week we, we were with Ron Extract of uh, Garden Path Ferments in Washington State, and it seems like he's taking a similar approach where he wants to be doing something with cider or wine or beer, and he's also calling it ferments. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if you've met him. He used to work at Jester King. Uh, I have never met him, but I've heard his name. Yeah, I'd like to meet him a good one of these guy. days. So, uh, Sebastian, you know, tell us about the collaboration. You know, you, part of what you're doing is you, you go around the country. I saw the world. I saw pictures of you in Estonia, Brazil. Um, what are you making at Grim Ale? So you, you were there today working, right? Yeah, we were um, today making a beer uh, called Black Forest. So it's based on a Black Forest cake. Schwarzwälder Kirschtorte. Exactly. And uh, so the label will have a nice Bollenhut uh, on it, so which is like the traditional hat. But the the beer is like uh, pretty much designed to um, be in the tasting in that direction. So it's like a very dark beer. Um, like a lot of rich malty character, uh, some chocolatey flavors and stuff like that. And then we will add uh, Montmorency cherries to it. So it will have a nice fruity touch. Did, some did you guys design, like, do you know what the alcohol is going to be? Do you know the flavor profile? Do you feel like you designed it ahead of time or it's, is it going to surprise you? It's always both. It takes a good design and then, then you find out what really happens. But we're fermenting it in the in the fooder, so it'll have a lot of uh, great, you know, complex character from Brett and Lactobacillus, and we'll we'll see what it ends up doing. It I, the goal really is to make a nice, 
wintry, rich, tart beer. Yep, yeah. I agree. Sounds good. And then you made a, a very cool label too. So what's this? What's this thing about the bonnet, the hat? Oh, well, for the Black Forest. Well, I just received a text from uh, from Greta, who does a lot of our label designs with uh, with the hat on it. And uh, today, Sebastian was like, "We should um, we should put this hat on the label." And so I texted Greta and showed her uh, what the hat was, and so she turned it around really fast. I just got the. Uh, the next version of the label just now looks awesome so we're looking forward to that and for both of you guys i mean design and, and marketing have been a big part of your success when I mean, your beers are good too but um not as good as the design though. yeah no. sebastian tell us about some of the inspiration behind your your uh you've got like some frightful images who, who does your designs and how did you come up with this kind of theme in the beginning um, yeah, at the very beginning, I was uh, creating the labels myself, so it was a lot of like story based and so on. But I'm far away from being uh, uh, very good with like painting or anything or doing anything like that. So at the end of the day, um, I would just like, come up with like a certain idea how things should look like, and then also the progress was like working with Shelton Brothers. Uh, they would like uh, help to uh, create some of the first labels um, and um, nowadays it's just like my label designer would be uh, a Dutch guy who's like doing a lot of cool designs and um, then uh, uh, someone I'm working with since about a year is like the, the brother uh, or like the um, brother-in-law from my girlfriend um, is a very talented uh, artist from Ohio and uh, he would just like do a lot of very cool paintings and stuff like that. And so we see some of those uh, artworks more recent on labels as well. And Joe, for you guys at Grimm, design and, and the marketing and the merchandise? Yeah, it's all done either by Lauren, uh, my wife who co-writes all of her recipes, uh, and our friend Greta, um, who is just an amazing artist who we've been friends with for really long time every once in a while we'll have you know another person from the just from our sort of extended friend group submit a label which is a lot of fun uh, but mostly these days it's Greta and Lauren do, do you feel that a benefit of having your own brewery now is that are you selling more merchandise or is there or is there a need for more of your own created you know merchandise or design materials it's definitely accelerated I mean before we had our own brewery, we used to, well, in the early days, we would make one beer every six weeks. And so there was a very slow pace of creativity. We had plenty of time to figure out what we were going to do next. Um, but now we're brewing, you know, a couple of beers a week. And about half of those or more will be beers that we've never produced before. So we have to be coming up with labels all the time. Um, so that's really, uh, it's amazing that Greta is able to just crank them out. Like, I, I literally just texted her about the uh, the Black Forest hat two hours ago, and she already returned a, a new version of the label with a totally new design. So, If I had to Google that, Sebastian, what would I be Googling? What, what, how would I find the Black Forest hat? Mm, it's called Bollenhut, originally. So it's from a very, very um, small area originally. It's like, I think like three or four villages, like very, very, very local. And um, they had just got more famous in like very early 
German movies, um, which would be like kind of like about the Black Forest in general. So people got the impression that uh, the hat would be like uh, war in the whole area and in the um, yeah in the wider area, but it's actually it's way way more local than uh, the Black Forest in total. And it's, um, it's like in total, it's like 13, I think it's 13 red wool balls on top of the hat. And it's just like, looks like, I don't know. Really it's like, really absurd. It, it looks... A pile of cherries on a, on a hat or something. Yeah. So is the, is the Black Forest cake named after the hat because it looks like <laughs> cherries? No, it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> well, there's so many great little stories that, that you guys both have. But let's jump on to the next subject. So you want to talk about Eisbach. So again, traditional German styles. I love German styles of beer. I could talk all, I could drink all day the Altbeers and, and everything. But Eisbach... You wanted to talk about that. Yeah, it's like, um, I mean, there's like, with a lot of stuff, like the Champagne Method uh, beers, for example, also the Kulchip beers. Um, people who are interested in specialized beers, they a lot of times have a very specific idea how um, things should taste. So it's a, it's a limited variation, you know, with Kulchip beers, it's mostly people would um, do Belgian-style beers. And for us, it's like, okay, we want to do our own stuff, just like more German stuff, you know. So we had like, for example, the guys from The Guard from Oregon over, they were like, oh, hey, let's make something Lambic-based. And it's like for us, it's not the idea trying to copy uh, Belgian breweries and what they do. And uh, we're just trying to do our own stuff. And the same situation goes with the Champagne beers. It's like there's Malheur and Deus in, in Belgium, for example, which would do Belgian strong ales and they would do the Champagne method. It's like that's the whole variation you can find but we like trying to explore and do these techniques with like just way different other styles you said you use berliner weiss with your champagne for example but also a lot of goza beers and cool ship beers which as i said is like in our own style and uh with iceberg it's kind of like the same situation you know there's like the the method you can do with pretty much every style there is um it's just like pretty much means only that you freeze in the beer so through the freezing process the water freezes earlier than the beer the alcohol and uh, so you're pretty much intensifying the alcohol but also the flavor of the beer and um so we would we are happy to do that and just like showing more variety in that style as well because most people would know like uh schneider aventino's weizen iceberg or uh, kulmbacher iceberg which are all based on very basic classic German styles, which would be always like Weizenbock or a classic Doppelbock or something. And um, we like to do like uh, smoked beer or uh, mango goza or things like that, which nearly nobody has ever done. I, I, I just wanted to say I, I enjoy and appreciate working with the German guys in that they, whatever they're doing, whether they're doing really traditional stuff like Mars or Kulmbacher, or something like Sebastian or Tilo at Rittergutz is doing, they always have an idea about where they come from. And there's always those two ideas. One is, what is our tradition? And the other one is, how do we make it so it's balanced and not just not just a gimmicky thing? Because it seems to be two German qualities that I think always keep the quality high in general. And earlier this summer, you brought uh, Ulrika from uh, Schneeurle, the Berlin Berliner Weiss Brewery. Yeah. And it was interesting. She had a talk, I think, with Pete from KCBC <laughs> yes. about fruit. Yes. And, and and actually, Joe, you, you touched on it because she was saying she only used whole fruit. And American brewers say, well, I use fruit puree. So th this comes back to you using whole fruit. Um, 
Are you German? <laughs> I'm half German. Oh, yeah. So half of our beers are made with whole fruit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. But I, 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 why is it such a controversy? I mean, do you need the puree to, to, to make your systems work when you're, when you're trying to crank out a lot of beer? I mean, why isn't everyone just using whole fruit if they're, if they're doing fruited beers? Well, well, there's so many reasons. Uh, it's just sort of, um, I guess, an industrial manufacturing problem, right? What are you going to do with a large volume of this messy, shelf-unstable thing uh, that you don't have a way to process? So that was how we came up with our process for the gathering beers, was trying to find a way to make this into a, a serious, ongoing thing um, even though the fruit that we were getting needed to be used the same day and we didn't have anything like uh, the sort of deep hitting or blending technology or screen smushing that they used to create the, the purees um, in the sort of puree factories um, if you want to make 60 or 90 barrels of like a sour Berliner Weiss with fruit and you need to get, I don't know, eight or 12 drums of puree <laughs> into that tank, then uh, that's just sort of a logistical impossibility. So these beers really can only be produced on a certain scale. Yeah. No, and that's pretty great. It, it, it's fun to talk about this. There's so many things that we touch on. Uh, Sebastian, we're going to wrap it up. But Sebastian, one other German beverage tradition that you'd like our listeners to know about? that you think is important? It can be beer, it can be something else. I think um, a lot of people have, a lot of beer people are only focused on beer, so they wouldn't really know uh, so much about other beverages generally. And so I think it's always uh, really cool as people from the industry there, I think generally more interested in other stuff as well. And um, I think in Germany, next to the really cool wine scene we have as well, which uh, is not that much known and it's, just starting to get credit again pretty much I would say uh, German cider it's pretty cool as well that's like around Frankfurt uh, there's a lot of uh, apple trees and uh, that would be used a lot and there's like a pretty cool part of town of Frankfurt where you can go to a lot of traditional um, pubs like old pubs which would serve a lot of awesome cider for very very little money and traditional Frankfurt uh, dishes uh, which featuring uh, among others, like uh, Frankfurt Green Sauce, a very herb-heavy spice sauce with seven, seven different spices, and that would be something really cool to discover for everyone. Joel, do you guys do a, a Shelton Brothers Insider Tour in Germany? Oh, I didn't want to say anything, but we do. Uh, our last night on the Franconia Tour is all about uh, Apfelwein in Frankfurt. You're making me so, want to go. And then, Joe, um, should go, Jimmy. What, for you, a, either a... a a beverage you'd like to recommend or a, a beverage maker that you want to mention that we could all be thinking about for another show? Hmm. Like who should you have on the yeah. show? Someone that you, you want to meet or learn more about or talk to. Hmm. Well, I don't know. Um, have you ever talked to Raphael from Enlightenment Wines? That's a really good point. We have had Raphael on. Um, he's blown my mind many times, including with his dandelion wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, what what about what he's doing inspires you? Because I know he, he started out making ciders and meads. And I think I actually at my, old, at my own pub, Jimmy's 43, I was his first 
legal customer. Yeah, I had I mean, a cardboard. He delivered a cardboard to me about 12, 10 or 12 years ago. Well, he's sort of in the neighborhood, so you should just have him. Um, but also, he's like an old friend of, of us. Uh, when we were first learning how to make pickles and, and do spontaneous fermentations, um, before we even started to make beer, uh, we were doing that uh, sort of in conversation with Raphael. And he, I recall he um, brought in, uh, what's the guy... Sander Katz, um, who sort of uh, revolutionized the discourse around fermentation um, with a, a few books of his, um, he had him come uh, to like a, a sort of, it was almost like a punk rock show, house show, <laughs> but instead of music, it was just Sander Katz teaching us how to ferment things. And, uh, you know, we all made pickles and i was no. like this is amazing <laughs> this is awesome and uh rafael tomorrow we, we it's it's rye week in new york we're doing a small event in williamsburg and rafael saw an email about it and he said i make a kvass yeah. and so he's actually going to send over some rye kvass killer to sample and another thing since you're all right uh the publishers of the original publishers of sander katz's book chelsea green publishing they told me that 25 years ago when his book came out didn't sell and nobody knew who the hell he was. So how far have we come in 25 years? I don't know. It's pretty cool. But, <laughs> but you know, sometimes the book that doesn't sell uh, has a big impact. Well, Joe, listen, uh, Sebastian, who, whenever he's in New York City, comes to see us. So we can count on seeing you hopefully again in a couple of years. But, Joe, since you're right around the corner at Grim Ales in Bushwick, we're going to have you back on maybe next time with, with Raphael Lyons. So thanks for, thanks for joining me. Um, everybody, Joe Grimm. Joel Shelton, of course, and Sebastian Sauer for joining me on the Sauer Hour. Uh, there's so many things we can do. Last time we had some fun talking about strange German words, and uh, but I really, I really respect what you're doing. I you really mean believe, Yeah, the Scheisse Hour. <laughs> I believe in the German brewing traditions, and thanks for uh, keeping us on our toes. Okay. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a great show. Thanks to our uh, engineer Matt Patterson. Uh, Kevin is our intern. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.